Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the ACA, that's the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. Yes, I did say it right, we're now, it's all official. We are now the Australian Chiropractors Association, not the Chiropractors Association of Australia. Congratulations to all the nine entities, both the national, the state and the territory companies that have all agreed, and of course the members agreed, uh, to roll into a single company. And I think it bodes very well for the chiropractic profession in Australia from here on in. So obviously with our association changing name, then we are now the ACA podcast. Now you may have seen uh, a few months back when we were still the uh, the CAA, by the way, uh, a blast of three emails uh, talking about papers that were published in the prestigious medical journal, The Lancet. These papers were put together by the Low Back Pain Series Working Group, a group of international experts. The purpose of the paper was to draw attention to the worldwide scale of disability associated with low back pain and to highlight differences between the evidence base and practice management of this condition. Well today I will have the absolute pleasure of talking to one of the experts involved with these papers, Dr. Alice Kongstead. To give you a little bit of uh, background on on Alice, she's a chiropractor uh, originally. She graduated from the University of Southern Denmark in 1999 and completed a PhD at the Faculty of Health Science in the University of Southern Denmark in 2005. Up to 2009, she had worked uh, in clinical practice as a chiropractor alongside with her academic work, mainly in outpatient hospital departments. Currently, she holds the position as Senior Researcher in the Nordic Institute of Chiropractic and Clinical Biomechanics and a position as Associate Professor at the Department of Sports Science and Clinical Biomechanics at the University of Southern Denmark. At the Nordic Institute, she has set up a network of chiropractic primary care research clinics that regularly participates in data collection for research purposes, perhaps something a bit similar to the ACORN project which we have running in Australia. Now, her research interests concern spinal pain with a focus on primary care. This includes investigating the prognosis of spinal pain and why people have different outcomes. She has an interest in the metho- uh, methodology and has taught PhD courses on prognostic research at the University of Southern Denmark and at Curtin University over here in Perth, Australia. Alice is uh, Associate Editor of BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders and she is a member of the editorial board for the chiropractic and manual therapies. She's been involved in the Danish Health Authority's development of three national clinical guidelines for the treatment of lumbar radiculopathy, cervical radiculopathy, and non-specific neck pain. She was part of the Lancet Back Pain series, which I mentioned earlier, um, and these uh, publishers that produced these three reports back in March uh, earlier this year. Uh, This has really been a call for the worldwide recognition of the disability associated with back pain um, and the need for prioritising this as a globally growing problem. Hi Alice, welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Now, um, 
perhaps before we get into those particular articles yourself, you, you've got a really interesting background. Could you share with our um, CA podcast listeners how it is that you um, came to be a chiropractor and in particular, uh, what led you down the path of research? Yeah, I think like many else, I got interested in chiropractic because I had some chiropractic treatment as a child and that's how I came to know about it. And then later when I was about to choose my education, I was so lucky that University of Southern Denmark just at that time started a chiropractic program here. So I entered that. And following my master degree from university, I was one year in, in private chiropractic clinic. Um, and I enjoyed the work with patients and, and I liked that, but I actually also missed the environment of the university and was lucky enough to become a PhD candidate and had my degree from here. And then I had some years with part-time uh, clinical work in a hospital department and part-time in research. And now for seven years, I think, I've been full-time in research and teaching. And I'm very fortunate to hold a shared position between the Nordic Institute of Chiropractic and Clinical Biomechanics and the University of Southern Denmark. Um, we are both located in the same uh, location so um, it feels like having one position but it is actually shared between the uh, chiropractic institution and the university. Fantastic and you would have uh, I'm assuming uh, and perhaps just uh, correct me if I'm wrong here but the education chiropractic education at the southern um, or the University of Southern Denmark that includes medical practitioners and chiropractors together is that correct? Yeah um, it is uh, the structure is that we have a bachelor degree uh, of three years uh, that is shared. Almost all topics are shared with the medical students here. Um, and then in the master's program, it's more uh, uh, differentiated into the chiropractic program and the medical school uh, so that it's uh, more solely topics that relate to musculoskeletal pain in of musculoskeletal conditions in the chiropractic program and the clinical um, uh, topics and, and the practical work uh, involved with the education uh, in uh, departments that relate to musculoskeletal conditions for the chiropractic students. So yeah, it's a lot of uh, common topics and a lot of common teaching across uh, medical students and chiropractic students here. And I guess that must be a great way to, I guess, promote collaboration and also break down bias between uh, the professions, which you, uh, you know, often see that bias, obviously, in countries or in regions where medicine and chiropractic are quite separate. Yeah, I think so, both because both uh, professions will know what kind of education the other one has. Yes. But I also think it's important that they have a shared language uh, because in some places um, it's simply difficult to uh, to communicate because we are taught in different uh, languages about the same things. Well, we'll be touching on that language uh, a little bit later on, but uh, let's leave that for now and get straight into the uh, Lancet papers because um, uh, I've got heaps of questions uh, that I want to ask you here. But let's start with uh, your paper, or there were three papers. You were co-author on the first of the papers, which was titled, What is Low Back Pain and Why Do We Need to Pay Attention? So what does the research say in terms of the incidence of low back pain 
and which groups in society are most at risk of disabling back pain? See, yeah, almost everybody will experience back pain at some point, and that's not really what's concerning. It is our concern is that disabling or activity limiting back pain uh, has been rather dramatically increasing over the last couple of decades. So. Back pain is now the leading cause of disability in the world. And as you mentioned, this series has um, tried to put a focus on that and to describe why it's time to pay attention to that problem. It, it, within the last year, around four out of 10 adults would have experienced back pain. So it's really a very many people every year. And at any point, it's estimated that 7% of adults all over the world will have limitations from back pain, some severe, some uh, mild limitations, but they will be affected from back pain in the daily living. And that's more than 500 million people at a given point. Mm. So it's really, really a lot of people affected from, from back pain. So it's not the problem that everybody will experience back pain now and then. The concern is that the activity limitation due to back pain is an increasing burden to to people and to society. It's, so, sorry, go ahead. We see that the highest prevalence of back pain and limit, back pain limitations is in the work, working populations. We're not actually sure why that is so, but that's of course problematic to uh, societies and not uh, the least to developing societies that really need a uh, working force. Um, and this is, uh, sorry to interrupt just one sec, this is another really interesting thing that I sort of uh, found fascinating in your, in your paper is that you did make a distinction between um, high income countries and their approach to low back pain and what developing you know, low to middle income countries might be introducing now and, and into the future. Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah. Um one of the things that is concerning is that uh, disabling low back pain is increasing in uh, frequency and prevalence in low and middle income countries. And we see from high income countries that we have put a lot of money and resources into solutions that are, we have tried to make solutions that were very expensive that uh, didn't solve the problem here. And now these solutions are adopted to uh, other countries as long as uh, as soon as they can afford uh, imaging facilities, diagnostic facilities, more expensive treatments. And we really don't want to export these bad solutions. Yes. So uh, so that was one of the the points that the reasons why we also wanted to make a distinction between high income, low middle income countries was both to see, there are things in high-income countries that we should probably not try to adopt to countries that are developing their back pain healthcare systems now, and also to simply get a better overview of what is known from different parts of the world. And one of the things that we were also that that struck me was that we actually know very little from low and middle income countries. We have tried to summarize the knowledge we have from those countries in the papers, but we over and over again, we also had to write that very little is known from low and middle income countries in, on this point, 
because so much more research is needed in many parts of the world. Indeed, and, and like you said, you, you don't want the uh, those countries that are you know struggling as far as the economics are concerned to make the expensive mistakes that we seem to be making already. Um, one of the uh, things that I'm sure chiropractors and pra other practitioners out there would be very aware of, but perhaps we can just sort of um, uh, just co cover this for uh, to be very uh, clear. What are the specific and non-specific causes of low back pain? Because most of the uh, your, the papers talk about those two groups. Yeah, um, the specific, uh, the main specific causes that we talk about are f things like fractures, spondyloarthritis, infections, pain from uh, cancer diseases, and these are very rare conditions. Uh, all over the world, but there are some differences, and probably where the main difference between different parts of the world is is in infections. For example, spinal tuberculosis is much more prevalent in some parts of the world than in others. Um, and no matter where, where we look, the main part of back pain is what we uh, usually uh, call non-specific back pain. Um, and that is back pain from from muscle and joints in the back. It's pain that can be related to degenerative changes, but the structures producing pain signals are generally not damaged. They are just sensitive. And with nonspecific back pain, it's not possible to say what is the exact structure that is the main generator of a nociceptive input or the main pain generator, um, but that doesn't mean that there is no nociceptive input. It doesn't mean that the pain is not real. It's just that we cannot tell if it's mainly from a disc, a facet joint, a light ligament, or, and I think in most cases it's probably a mixture. All these structures are so closely connected, so um, maybe it's also unrealistic to think that we should be able to point to one pain generating structure. Indeed. So that are the types of back pain that we uh, that we describe and and also distinguish between non-specific uh, back pain and and back pain with radiculopathy, where we have some nerve root involvement. So let's sticking with the non-specific back pain, and of course because you know I, I expect uh, in um, first world countries that probably is going to make up. 95% or thereabouts of the uh, the people that work through the door of a chiropractor or a uh, similar health practitioner. Uh, and speaking from a clinician's point of view uh, here, when people, people come, especially when people come and they're in pain, one of the things I find is that they want some sense of certainty, a certainty in what is causing their problem. Is it serious? How long does it take to get uh, for them likely to get well? Um, I, I just say that one of the challenges here is that uh, by telling a patient you have non-specific back pain, I, I somehow think that they're not going to be entirely satisfied with that as a diagnosis. How do you deal yeah, with those people? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, non-specific back pain is not the best work, uh, word for, for patients. I totally agree with that. And it's also uh, certain that people want an explanation. We see that from all kind of studies that look into patients' expectations to consultations. Um, but I also suspect or think that the need for a specific 
structural diagnosis is often as much the clinician's as it is the patient's expectations. Mm. Uh, so I think what we should, should really remind ourselves is that uh, what we think of as non-specific low back pain doesn't mean that we don't have a clue on what's going on, that we don't know anything about the condition. Yes. Actually, we know a lot now. We know it's not a progressive disorder. We know that it's often a condition that's episodic or with fluctuating pain. We know it's a condition where the tissue is sensitive but not fragile. We know that it's signals from the back that's translated into pain when the brain considers these signals to be threatening. So um, it means that the pain doesn't directly reflect the, or the amount of pain doesn't directly reflect tissue damage. It's just a warning yep. that we are exposed to more demands than we have capacity to manage. So I, I think we have a lot of knowledge about this condition. I think we have to work on a better term than non-specific back pain. And unfortunately, I cannot just, it's really not an easy task. No. Uh, we have actually a project working on that now. Um, but we also see that in patient interviews, at least some patients, they say after being through um, a program here where we do not give them any structural explanation for the pain, they say things like, it was really important to me that I now understand what is wrong. Um, so they get, a, get this sense that they now understand their back pain better, even though they didn't get a a good a, one word for a diagnosis. Yes. Uh, so it's really easy for me to say because I don't see patients anymore. Yes. But, <laughs> but, but I think that clinicians should consider if the structural diagnosis is their need or the patient's need. Of course, and, and I think to talk in terms of you know function and still educate pa uh, patients in terms of um, how these things uh, might develop and what their role can be in uh, improving the health. Because sometimes a, a diagnosis is a weight for them to carry. They they might want that weight, but sometimes it's a weight that stops them moving forward as well. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So talking uh, about chronic pain now, and not just, I guess, back pain, but any kind of chronic pain we know has the potential to have uh, centrally mediated mechanisms. Um, can you speak a little bit uh, uh, to this and how um, it, practitioners are best to approach people with chronic pain who may have you know, brain-related centrally mediated mechanisms in play? Yeah, um... I think that it's, uh, first of all, that we have to realize that all pain is uh, modulated or understood in the brain. And that is not because patients have are uh, mentally fragile or have psychological problems. Pain is modulated in the brain of all of us. Experiencing pain is a, a central mechanism. So, um, and we also know that if the brain perceives some signals from the spine or wherever in the body as threatening, it's more painful. So in our clinical approach, I think first of all, it's really important that we support some helpful beliefs about the condition. Also in non-chronic patients that early on when people get pain, that they should uh, know that it's not a, that that the pain is not 
it's just a signal of, of structural damage. I think to most people, it just makes so much sense that the more pain, the more damage. And, yes. uh, and, and that's something that we really should, in everything uh, we say in signals, should help people understand that even when the spine is, is painful, it's still strong. Um, and I think both clinicians and patients should, we should work on an understanding that at least back pain, but many pain conditions is not something where we can treat it and fix it in order to return to activities. I think we have had previously a model of care where we waited for recovery and then you could return to playing soccer or return to work or whatever. Yes. Now we know more that being active is what brings you back. You just have to do that graded a little by little if if you are a very limited but but we cannot there's nothing we can fix or remove and then the pain is gone and you can get back to your life so we really have to support uh, people in being active as part of their recovery so well, i guess you know with chronic low back pain it really ever comes in a neat little package anyway. So I guess addressing multiple factors and having a more of a, a multimodal approach uh, is important, not only in terms of uh, the complexity of the presentation, but also addressing some of these um, uh, centrally mediated mechanisms. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I, I think I'm, I lost you. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, so how do you, do you see... Um, in terms of managing these more complex uh, conditions, so you know clearly manual therapy has a has a great role uh, to play here. But did, with your um, understanding and your chiropractic education, understanding how chiropractors are educated across the world, do you think that um, we're well established and uh, well positioned to deal with these more complex cases? Um, do you think chiropractors need to collaborate more with other practitioners in in terms of dealing with chronic pain? Mm. From it's it's my impression, and I really don't know a lot about chiropractic all over the world, but it's my impression that both chiropractors, both the way chiropractors are educated, the way we work, and the way we collaborate is quite different uh, between different parts and between different persons also. But I think in general that chiropractors are very well equipped for taking on a also a larger role in, in management of, of complex pain cases. Um, it requires that we can find a practice model and, and want to spending time with understanding and education, educating patients. And it also takes that we really are good at communication with general practitioners and other healthcare practitioners. Uh, so back to that common language that yes. we should be really willing to also to to use a language and a model of care that is understood by other practitioners in the healthcare system. So I think that if chiropractors really want to take on a central role in managing complex complex pain patients, I think they're really well educated to do so. And I think it's very unique to have the the education in understanding the complexity of pain and also being able to work with physical treatments. Um, and, and with new guidelines that are increasingly saying that first-line treatment is not about pain medication and we should avoid 
the uh, more heavy drugs also for chronic pain patients, we should really um, take on a responsibility as chiropractors to to put something instead. It's not enough that we say what people should not have. We should put we should have good um, alternatives, and I think chiropractors could play a role in that. So let's in- let's. Clarify just to, to bring you back to um, the what's in and what's out. We mentioned at the outset how um, the evidence approach to, to low back pain isn't always um, uh, emulated in the practical approach uh, out there in the field. What's the ideal approach as far as evidence is concerned for low back pain, and and what's perhaps uh, on the outer now in terms of uh, uh, common approaches? I think we are getting clear across clinical guidelines around the world that what's really in is patient education. It's also manual therapies and also supervised exercises and helping people to uh, engage with physical activities. It is the kind of management that supports self-management. We know that people with back pain will have back pain on and off or more and less for long periods of time. Um, so people really need to be educated in managing their back pain themselves. And that can take, that, that can look differently to different people, but it involves being educated, it, it involves being supported and being active. And what is not supported and what we should avoid is that we reach a routinely use of imaging. We should avoid uh, invasive procedures like in, injection, opioids. We have this really large opioid crisis around the world that mm. too many people have too much um, opioid, have opioids for way too long time. They don't have effect for, from it. They have side effects and get addicted to it. Um, and also pain medication more generally is losing ground because we cannot really show that there are positive, true positive effects of, of pain medication for back pain. And, and lastly, we have to bring down the rates of surgery for non-specific back pain because it's not, there's not adequate evidence that people benefit from that. So in, in that perspective, uh, chiropractors and other professions that work with um, non-invasive and non-medical treatments, I I think we have a central role to play in this. In, uh, I think it was 1997, there was 44% of of Americans had at least one visit to a complementary or alternative health practitioner in a 12-month period. And I guess with that evidence and in light of what you've just said there, uh, you would seem that um, chiropractors certainly appear to have a significant role uh, in healthcare in the future in general and particularly in the area of, uh, of management of low back pain. Yeah, I'm sure chiropractors have, if they want to work with, pace, with the patients who is in most need of care and to work with a focus on supporting self-management um, I think we've moved a lot, but I also think that there are still, uh, a, at least in, I, I see also still that, that the manual treatment, the manipulation treatment plays a very central role to many chiropractors. 
and and that's still a it's a tool that it's recommended it's a tool that we should use but i also think that we should consider how we work with with better support of self-management um so uh, yeah i'm I'm sure that uh, that chiropractors and other clinicians that can work with uh, patient education physical activity manual therapy they are there's really a call for clinicians who will take responsibility to deliver this in in a way that supports people one of the um uh, i won't say necessarily the reason that i got into uh, chiropractic i think my reason was similar to yours i just had a really positive experience with a chiropractor i went there with neck pain from studying for my exams and was very impressed and just intrigued by the whole process uh, I guess it wasn't until I became a student that I became more interested and I started to understand a, a, a vitalistic philosophy that, uh, that certainly was um, uh, promoted within the school that I went to and the whole idea that the body is sort of self-healing and self-regulating and, and that sort of s- sat very well with me and still sits very well with me. Um, and and the way, as we sort of get into this more you know biopsychosocial approach to health, I, I keep thinking that um, that a lot of the traditional philosophies and understandings that chiropractors have have always had sits very well with the, the modern day science, but there's still just that little bit of disconnect, and it does come down to uh, I think partly the terminology. Um, I kind of almost wonder if that biopsychosocial approach is simply the the modern scientific language for something like holism what, what do you think about that yeah i, I think it very well uh, could be and um and i think all this this modern understanding of pain as or maybe it's not modern maybe actually as you point to it's it's there's nothing new but we've just started talking to it in other words but but the understanding of pain and as a result of both body cognitions, behaviors, feelings, and um, and the approach that consider physical, mental, cognitive resources and physical, mental demands, that is uh, very much in, in line with that traditional uh, thinking. Um, there are, of course, parts of, of, of what people believe in, in old-time traditional chiropractic that does not play a role anymore. I think at some point the the thinking was that the ability of the body to be self-healing was related to spinal alignment and being well adjusted and all these things. We now know that that's not the case. Yes. But but there's no doubt that there is a lot of capacity uh, in people and in bodies to be self-healing. Uh, we know that back pain and other conditions very often are self-limiting. And we know that people have um, a, a lot of uh, inborn power to, to self-heal, just that somebody needs some support um, in finding the resources and, and getting back on track if they have been in pain for a long time. So uh, finally what I wanted to chat with you about was just um, we very much live in an evidence-based world and you're you know, very absorbed in doing some great work in, in, in that field. Most of the um, guidelines come from larger randomized controlled trials or, or something similar. Um, 
do we do we base too much um, of our understanding of how to manage these things based on these big trials? I mean, is there and, and maybe at the um, you know, is one is one hundred case studies worth more than a randomised controlled trial with uh, one hundred participants in it, for example? Um, I I really think that randomised trials have a unique role to play. Uh, we need large and well conducted, high quality trials, and I think they have there's things that cannot be be really understood from other designs. But I also think that we need to do different uh, kinds of research uh, in addition. And I think we need to take the knowledge from the randomized trials and and see how that works in, in real clinical situations. So I think we need also observational, practice-based research, implementation research. I think these things have a huge role to play also because we need to understand what's actually going on in clinical practice. What are the, why are the choices made for care pathways the way they are? What are the care pathways and, and what are the benefits for people with who are more heterogeneous in their presentations than patients in trials uh, typically are. Yes. Um, and to understand also, like you say, from single case studies or from case series, what actually makes a difference to individual people? I think we we need to to get into more of the complexity in 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 individuals also. But but I think we should we should base the the kind of of um, interventions that we look into, uh, I think we should we should keep on track with the things that trials have shown to be effective, and then get to understand what what determines that effect. How can we improve that effect, and and how can we interact with people so that individuals benefit uh, the most, and and individuals are supported also in in making sense of their own condition with the care we provide. Yeah, I think that last point you made is a very good one. I guess it's up to then the clinician to be aware of the evidence that's available and then apply that in their unique situation given their experience and the and the, um, uh, the patient's expectations, which is, of course, the original uh, evidence-based model. Yeah, and I also think that researchers should... Um, uh, researchers or implementation people should take on a responsibility to translate the evidence into clinical practice because I actually I, I totally agree that of course clinicians should be aware of, of available evidence but I also think it's unrealistic that clinicians should read papers and make decisions about the clinical decision uh, the clinical practicing from that that's just too overwhelming yes so I really yeah. think we should try to to um, to find ways to translate uh, clinical guidelines, recommendations, other evidence into clinical practice. So we work now with approaches to uh, standardize uh, clinical uh, care pathways or care packages that can support clinicians in delivering evidence-based care because I, I actually don't think it's really fair to ask from clinicians that every individual clinician should read RCTs and make decisions based on that 
huge amount of, of mm. knowledge that's available out there. Yes. Well, look, um, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a growing um, topic as far as, or a growing incidence in terms of low back pain all around the world. And we need people like you, uh, Alice, to be uh, out there in the trenches doing the important work and uh, in keeping people like myself and uh, the, the clinical chiropractors and clinical practitioners out there as informed as we can be. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, onwards and upwards from here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for making your time out. And it's uh, great to be able to chat to someone across the other side of the world and, uh, and just share ideas and information uh, like that. Thanks again, Ellis. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm-hmm.